opportunity uh, to engage with your word. We pray that you open our hearts to your word and open your word to our hearts. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. So now we finally come to the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. Perhaps you've been through it before, either at a leisurely exploration of your own pace, checking out this strange gem of scripture, or if you've ever dedicated yourself to reading the Bible through by a certain date, probably in a frenzied skim reading. Perhaps you've never read it at all before, and having no particular affection for falling stars and giant beasts and this apocalyptic circus. But regardless of your familiarity, welcome to the final words of God in the word of God. If you're part of a life group, consider jumping into our Revelation Bible study series. We're running parallel with our sermon series. It's not a particularly long book, but boy, is it deep in places. Um, And that's the kind of deep that's more easily discussed in a small group than it is explained in a short sermon series. I've had friends at Bible College tell me about how their church did a a five-year series on Revelation. I'm not sure that's a healthy way to distribute your uh, preaching priorities, but this is the kind of book that life groups are made for. So as we move through, we'll be bouncing around in chapter 1. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to have it open. Um, But before we dive into the imagery and the theological crunch, it's worth taking a moment to pick apart why this chapter seems to have three introductions rather than one. So the final state of this letter as we find it, as it's delivered to us in the Bible, has three introductions. The first, the one that was probably written first, is there in verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This appears to be the first thing that John wrote when he wrote this book. He identifies himself. He's writing about the circumstances under which he was writing it. He was exiled to Patmos as a result of his preaching, as a punishment for spreading the gospel. And after that, he launches into his account of events that follows on. Now before that, in verse 4, we have a different introduction. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia, so on, so on. So John, when he's finished scribing down his vision, he adds this new letter to the front as an introduction to the main body of the letter. And then verses 1 to 3 are an additional different prologue again, which refer to John by name, but not in the first person. So it looks like the author of those three verses was not John, just a faithful brother or sister whose job it was to deliver this message to the churches. Now this starts to seem a little confusing, but we think of it this way. If Revelation had been written in 2015, most of it would be a Word document with one introduction, and that would be attached to an email with its own little introduction in there. Hey guys, check out the attached apocalyptic Word doc. THX, John. And then that message and attachment, once sent to those seven, gets forwarded far and wide by randomsaint85 at msn.com with his own little edition of, this is sent by John, it's very important that you read it. Thus, three introductions. So now that we've worked backwards from verse 9 to understand what we're reading, let's step through from the start. Verses 1 to 3 is this prologue from this unnamed saint who delivered the message. Now... Verse 3 is the particularly interesting one. Dan mentioned it before. This blessing for those who would receive it after the seven churches did. This includes you and I. Where we read, blessed is the one who reads these words aloud of this... Words aloud... Let's try that again. 
Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. That's a blessing directed as much to you and I as to any small first century house church. And we do well to take it to heart, what is written there for us. So in verse 4, we start getting John's greeting. Although he sneaks in his doxology there, giving a moment to give glory to God. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. The one who was and who is and who is to come is, of course, God, the Father on his throne. And when we get to chapter 4, we'll get an amazing picture of the throne of God and the heavenly creatures around the throne will be praising him using that title, who was and is and is to come. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, thus was, is, is to come. Now that's the easy one. What's the deal with these seven spirits before his throne? Which are first mentioned here, but will show up again in chapter 4. What are these seven spirits and why does it matter? Well, there's a little discussion about this. Most folks tend to come down on the side that says this is referring to the Holy Spirit. They say he's a sevenfold spirit because he's the same spirit on each of the seven churches mentioned. I like that, but personally, after grappling with this verse, I come down on it saying that, yes, this is the Holy Spirit, but I don't think the seven means he's divided to seven churches in that kind of way. I think the reference to seven spirits is referring forward to chapter 4 and 5, where these seven spirits appear near the throne of God. This isn't the same vision that we get, the lamb with the seven eyes and the seven horns. It's the sevenness that is symbolic. It's a symbolic quality of the seven that's being used. Someone with seven eyes has perfect all-seeing knowledge and vision, symbolically speaking. And if God has seven spirits, symbolically speaking, then we can say that God's Holy Spirit perfectly and completely does all those things which we can expect God's spirits to do. Inspires, acts, empowers, uplifts, convicts. And that's exactly the understanding that we have of how the Holy Spirit operates. Thus the seven spirits symbolically speaking. So now that we have grace and peace from the Father and from the Holy Spirit in this opening blessing, and finally from the Son, Jesus Christ, here comes a very densely packed gospel message, incidentally, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus came to testify as a faithful witness about the redemptive plan of God. Then he was the firstborn from the dead. He died, he rose up again from the grave, and will raise up all who call on his name. And now he has ascended back to heaven, where he has taken up his place at the Father's right hand as the King of kings and Lord of lords. So grace and peace to you from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is yet another place in Scripture where the whole Godhead is referenced, and in this case identified together as the source of grace and peace. John goes on to direct all glory and power to Jesus who has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us into a kingdom of priests to serve God his Father. See, John's a true disciple, and he's not going to let an opportunity to go past to praise the Son of God for his saving work. 
And it's a fine, tight frame of picture that we have. He saved us by the sin, from our sins by his blood. He's our saviour. And he's made us into a kingdom of priests to serve God, his Father. He is Lord. Thus he is our saviour and Lord. But by verse 7, John stopped talking about the things that Christ has done and begins talking about the things that he will do. Verse 7 is pulled from two Old Testament sources. There's Daniel 7.13, which features the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven into the presence of God, the Ancient of Days. And Zechariah 7.10, where God prophesies that there will be a day when Jerusalem looks on he, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn. This is the end of days which has been hinted at in flashes and snippets of scripture all through the works of the prophets. Jewish readers were meant to read this doxology by John and immediately shift gears and say, oh, this is it. This is the prophecy delivering the functioning, understandable final word of what that final day will be like. This is what the end of days will be. Previous glimpses will be clearer now that we are closer to the end. And Jewish readers are being primed to receive this as an addition to the prophecy that they had. And we, not Jewish, but inheritors of the Jewish scriptures, we know to be attentive to it as well. So then we move into verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now one of the interesting features of Revelation is the way that it strives, starting right now, as it moves through the book, to really underscore how closely woven together the Father and the Son are. Differentiated as persons, but the same in essence, the same God. And this statement, the technical term is marismus, although you don't need to memorize that, there will not be a quiz, shows up over and over again for both the Father and the Son. A marismus is something when you refer to two parts of something, usually either end to refer to the whole thing. Thus, Alpha being the first letter in the Greek alphabet, Omega being the last. He's the Alpha and the Omega and everything in between. He's the A to Z, the one who stands behind everything. So as we move through this Revelation series, continue to think about that and uh, consider taking a special note when these things turn up because they will happen often and see who they refer to. And now as we hit verse 10, we're finally at the vision itself. Verse 10, on the Lord's day I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. (laughs) Thank you. And this just quietly actually cracks me up because John's there, he's in the spirit, he's in deep communion with God and he's in a state of prophetic attention. And then Jesus appears to talk to him, but for reasons we are not told and may always have to guess at, the Son of God who spent years on earth and knows this man, John, personally, face to face, and loves him, and John is waiting for him to come back. For some reasons we are not told, Jesus appears behind him and then creeps up and speaks in a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, John doesn't say that he screamed and jumped five feet in the air, but I feel that may be implied. But whether or not that's speculation. The loud voice commands him to write down the vision that he is about to see. 
and he sends it and to send it to the seven churches. But when he turns around, he sees this mysterious scene and the most alarming speaker. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were blazing fire. His feet were like a bronze were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Now the lampstands will come back to, Jesus conveniently explains them for us later. The double-edged sword will come up again later in Revelation, and we'll talk about that imagery more then, because it will make more sense with some retrospect. But it's this shocking, glorious speaker upon whom we must now concentrate. So much of this description is anchored in prophetic visions that have come before. The hair white as snow belongs to the Ancient of Days in Daniel 13. The voice like rushing waters belongs to the glory of the God of Israel from Ezekiel 1 and other places in that book. And the face shining like the sun is featured in a few places, but most relevant to here is to John. He's having seen Christ like this once before in Matthew 17, in the verses that tell us, about the transfiguration. Matthew 17, verses 1 and 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. John saw a glimpse of this before, this glorious revealing of who Jesus was divinely not only shining and resonating with power, he has this snowy hair and blazing eyes and glowing bronze skin that is associated with the Ancient of Days, with Father God, with the God on the throne. And there's a deliberate conflation here. These are crossed over deliberately so that we can see that the Father and the Son are the same in essence. The Old Testament forecasts this Son of Man rising up into the presence of God, and now we have the Son of Man crowned with the imagery associated with God. He's taken up everything he laid down to become a mortal man, to die for our sins. But even though John knew Jesus was God, and he knew he was saved, and he knew that he was going to be crowned with this glory, once that he was, oh, because he'd seen it once before when it was in John's presence. He wasn't equipped to handle it. And his response is the same as Ezekiel's and Daniel's when they see the same thing. And the same response as that as his own response the first time in verses 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. John falls down. He faints on the spot. In case we might be at risk of seeing this as an act of worship, he assures us that he fell down as though dead. He faints because he is terrified of the best friend he's ever known, whom he loves and whom he knows he is loved by. The Apostle John, one of the disciples who knew Christ on earth most intimately and lived the longest in his service, 
He doesn't weep tears of joy and leap into his arms. He doesn't drop to his knees to worship. He's so broken with fear that he passes out on the spot. If there was ever a human being in history who might have built up some kind of immunity to God's glorious radiance and presence, it's John, but he drops like a rock. And this inspires an interesting question. How do you, how do we think of Jesus? What image do we expect we will see on that day when we do meet him face to face? We're all well acquainted with the artistic renditions of Jesus Christ because they usually come out of Europe. They usually reflect their origin, a serenely smiling man, handsome, typically Caucasian. Perhaps gesturing with one pierced hand over an astonished crowd. Or my personal favorite, the one where he's cradling an actual lamb, as if to say, good shepherd. (laughs) Maybe like me, the face of Jesus in your mind is remarkably like that of Jim Caviezel, who played our savior in The Passion of the Christ. But when we consider Christ, or we take time to pray and meditate on him, we should avoid thinking of him even visually as just a nice man. Christ's divine nature is so huge and terrifyingly profound that the imagery he uses to convey it is accordingly terrifying. And I use the word terrified deliberately. Terror is the fear of the unknown. and There's a real depth and infinite nature to God that means that we can never know all of him. We can know God truly, but not completely. And he will always be somewhat beyond us because of that nature. And the Son of God displays that defined nature, and when he does, fear is the appropriate response. We're told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and sometimes we're tempted to water this down because it sounds scary. And so we say, well, maybe the word means respect or awe more than actual fear, but I don't know. We worship a God that causes grown men to faint the moment they see him. That looks like actual rational fear to me. But Christ's response here is to lay his hand on the fallen apostle and say, don't be afraid. And only after Christ touches him is he able to go on. So what do we take away from that gesture? That no one can stand in the presence of God unless God first reaches out and touches him. Not everything in Revelation has to be particularly mysterious after all. He says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. There's another of these Marismai. God is the Alpha and the Omega. Christ is the first and the last. He possesses the same absolute nature as the Father, but unlike the Father, Jesus was dead and now he's alive forever and ever. And we're told he holds the keys of death and Hades. Hades being the realm of the dead, figuratively or literally, it doesn't matter for the purpose of this passage. The keys are certainly figurative. I'm sure that Christ doesn't need to thumb through his divine key ring to get off the chub brand padlock on the spiritual kingdom of the dead. But what is certain here is the truth that Jesus conquered death. He died and he went down into the grave and then he busted back out again. And now he has the authority to raise up out of the grave anyone he chooses. And we'll see that happen later in the book of Revelation. But now to John, this is a reminder of what he knows, that Jesus, 
whom John watched die on the cross and saw raised up again in three days, has resumed his glorious place and this great work of God is complete. Death is defeated. Sin's back is broken. No man or woman need ever live in fear of what is to come. Because death comes for us all. And Jesus, firstborn among the dead, will see all his followers likewise delivered from the grave. The grim reaper who has plagued the world since Cain slew Abel has been forced into a change of occupation. Once a specter of terrible, inevitable endings of things, now a divinely employed chauffeur to take the lost and the slain from Hades to the throne of God. That is, for anyone who isn't too proud to accept the charity of the Almighty God. Finally, in verses 19 and 20, Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now Jesus reveals the nature of the imagery from earlier in this chapter, as surely as he explained the parables in the Gospels. John, if his palpitations have stopped at this point, might be feeling a pang of remembrance. The seven stars in his hand are the angels of the seven churches. Now, what do we mean by angel in this case? We know that angel can mean an actual heavenly angelic messenger or a human messenger of God. John the Baptist, for example, is called angelos, angel. It could be any of these, and if these angels are the angelic heavenly kind, there could be particular angelic spirits associated with these seven churches. If they're human, they could be the seven individuals sent to carry a copy of this letter to those churches. More likely, though, those seven angels are the seven bishops, the one that God has placed in authority over those individual churches, making them stewards of his word. And By the time John writes this, all the other apostles are off the table. The churches are being passed to the next generation of Christians. The first generation of Christian leaders who have never met Christ in person or happened to be around while the crucifixion was going on. But since the seven lampstands are the seven churches and the seven stars are the angels of those churches, it stands to reason that those angels are the God-appointed leaders of those churches whom he guides and he teaches. Those stars are in his right hand, in his grip, under his guidance and appointment. Since the next two chapters are concerned with teaching and guiding those churches, this explanation seems to fit best. So that's it. That's Revelation chapter 1. Now my fledgling pastoral instincts are trying to convince me to find three takeaway points with the same starting letter. But... After some thought, I ended up surrendering. There's only one focus point that I can really find here in chapter 1, and it's this. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the Son of Man anointed by the Ancient of Days. He's the firstborn of the dead who delivers us from our sins. He's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that sees the chosen king set up over all the earth. And he is the first and the last. For the non-believer who supposes that the Bible is all lies, fine. No amount of flapping scripture at this person will change their conviction. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But for the person who considers themselves spiritual but not religious, who thinks that Jesus was a wise teacher or a good man, 
even if they can maintain that notion through the Gospels by some concerted effort of focused delusion or selected reading, Revelation gives no room for a Jesus who is less than fully, powerfully, and frighteningly God. And for those who do believe, this is a reminder that it is the God, the one with the blazing fire for eyes and a face that shines like a sun and power that causes men to faint in his presence. That God is the one who wrapped himself in mere humanity so that we could know him and through him know life so abundant that it breaks through the gates of death and races on to eternity with God. As we move to Revelation in the coming weeks, we'll be reminded time and time again how central Jesus is to the plans and actions of God in this world. But for now, it's enough to remember that we are fallen and dead without him until he reaches out to touch us, to show us the truth of God. Let's pray. Father God, you are the Alpha and the Omega. You were there before the world began to spin, and when the sun winks out of the sky, you will still be there. We thank you that Christ took our sins upon himself and seized the keys to death in Hades. May we live as priests in your kingdom, then and now, God, as messengers of your gospel, so that all the world can know what we know, that Jesus Christ is Lord, first and last King of Kings. In Jesus' name, amen.